0: Welcome to St. Athanasius Podcast. Today we're going to be kicking off my book reviews from last year. We'll be starting with a book by Hilaire Balak called How the Reformation Happened. Okay, Hilaire Belloc, a contemporary of G.K. Chesterton, was a Renaissance man and a staunch Roman Catholic, similar to Chesterton. However, Belloc was born in France and then raised in England, where Chesterton was native to England. Belloc maintained his French citizenship, but he did become a naturalized British citizen after a while. Chesterton was an Anglican convert to Rome, but Belloc was a cradle Catholic which is more interesting to me. I'm more interested in hearing from cradle Catholics rather than Protestants like Chesterton who have converted to Rome. I give more credence to them because they're more authentically Romanist, whereas a Protestant convert, they're still Protestant in all kinds of ways. Scott Hahn, for example, he brings all these covenantal insights from Calvinism into Rome and everybody thinks it's fantastic. Um so I really like listening to these, uh, these cradle Catholics. And if a Protestant convert adopts some kind of ad orientum, Latin mass, Romanist purity, I think it's only because they're doing so in reaction to their Protestant background. If they have this kind of disdain and vitriol for Protestantism, it's tied up with all kinds of personal, emotional stuff that's connected to their evangelical often baptist and very narrow protestant experience growing up reactionaries are boring and predictable but a cradle catholic who hates protestantism i'm very much interested in what they have to say and i would put Hilaire Balak in this category. I wasn't familiar with Balak before reading this this book. There was one quote from him that I did know about, and I posted it every year on 9-11 because I thought it was incredibly insightful. It's from his book, The Great Heresies. He says this, It has always seemed to me possible and even probable that there would be a great resurrection of Islam and that our sons or our grandsons would see the renewal of that tremendous struggle between the Christian culture and what has been, for more than a thousand years, its greatest opponent. The suggestion that Islam may re-arise sounds fantastic, but this is only because men are always powerfully affected by the immediate past. One might say that they are blinded by it, but not so very long ago, less than a hundred years before the Declaration of Independence, Vienna was almost taken and only saved by the Christian army under the command of the King of Poland on a date that ought to be among the most famous in history, September 11th, 1683. He wrote that in 1938, which is, I think... Incredibly prophetic. He is an insightful man and obviously talented in in lots of ways. I believe he was a soldier for a while, so I'm assuming he fought in the First World War, but I, I don't know. And then, as I said before, he was he's kind of a, a Renaissance man. He did a, a lot of a lot of things, kind of like Chesterton. Okay, why the Reformation happened? In how the Reformation happened, he's open about his views. He isn't feigning objectivity. He's he's got an axe to grind, and he grinds it throughout the entirety of the book. And I appreciate that. I'm not interested in, uh, generally not interested in people feigning objectivity. But I do think the book should be called Why the Reformation Happened rather than How, though he does give us both. So, why did the Reformation happen? Here are some preliminaries to the Reformation that he mentions Constantinople is taken by Muslims, the study of Greek and Hebrew is increasing, there's a breakdown of morals in Europe. The papacy already is weakened due to schism like the Avignon papacy. The Roman church failed to correct the moral decay or lead by example. And I'll touch on this several times. I appreciate how much he admits this. And then he says the Black Death, which happened from 1348 to 1350, killed half of Europe's population. So there's these preliminary factors that he considers as important in paving the way for the Reformation. All right, he gives four main reasons for why the Reformation happened. He says, one, the weakening of the moral discipline among the clergy. Two, the far greater weakening of moral discipline among the laity. Three, an increasing popular indignation at the failure of the official church to reform itself. And four, that permanent hatred of the Catholic faith, which is inseparable from the church on earth. Hatred of the bride, hatred of the bridegroom that force which provided Calvary. And that last one, I obviously don't think that that's the primary impetus to the Reformation. I think the Reformation was a great thing and a spirit-inspired thing. But I do think that in the messiness of it all, people who do hate the bride are caught up in that. I, I don't know the details of it, but you do have the Peasants' Revolt and you do have kind of Anabaptist nonsense happening at this time too. And you have all kinds of things that I think... I don't think it's ridiculous for him to say that or to continue or to consider that as a factor that's involved. As for the first three, I would agree that that was was part of it as well. Here's kind of a salvo of interesting uh, observations that he makes. He says the moral decay among the clergy was not universal, but its toleration was universal. And and that's, uh, I think, a good distinction. The Bishop of Toledo in Spain forbade indulgences. Belloc mentions the old rivalry between the Pope and the German king as emperor, as Roman emperor. This is something that predates the Reformation, it goes all the way back to really the fall of the, the Roman Empire and its rebuilding after that and kind of this power struggle between the German king and the Pope. Pope really stepped in as, as kind of the leading figure in the West after the fall of the Christian Roman Empire and then we have of course the coronation of Charlemagne and so throughout history we have these kinds of going back and forth between the Pope and the German king leo the 10th apparently said the reformation was a quarrel among monks the dominicans were in charge of indulgences and the augustinians were jealous i think that that is a re- absurd criticism it shows how how disconnected the, these guys at the top were the gives an unfair criticism of calvin throughout the entire thing but uh, he says he it was who began the war against joy <laughs> so i think he's i think he's playing off of these popular caricatures which which are unfairly ascribed to the puritans and then he's just kind of i think just pasting them onto calvin he talks about three characteristics of the flood which is his term for the reformation's popularity these three characteristics were anti-clerical the people resented the priesthood as a privileged class a wealthy class and their possession of sacramental powers He connects retained doctrines to laity acceptance. So doctrines that were retained by the reformers that he would also consider Catholic were only retained because they didn't strike at the laity's indignation with the priesthood. Number two, not originally a doctrinal attack on the church. It was anger against abuses in the priesthood and the papal see. Well, that's true. And then number three, he says it could not construct anything, which I think is not true at all. He does mention some warts of the Reformation that I would agree with. In England, he brings up Cranmer's granting of an annulment to Henry VIII. Cranmer has a lot of marks on his life, even though I appreciate the English tradition quite a bit. I do lose respect for Cranmer for going back and forth on what he believed about the Lord's Supper and not sticking to his guns and then also granting the annulment to henry VIII is it was wrong for him to do that and it was sinful it was sinful for him to do that he talks about the looting of the monasteries i don't know the details behind that but i mean i have read about it i just it just hasn't stuck with me i do think that there there is valid criticism to to be made of that but at the same time These rotten institutions, I'm very quick to say, well, they, they got what they had coming. Even if it was unjust, they still got what they had coming. And then also, this is a, a criticism that I would share with Belloc of the English tradition. Making Henry VIII a layman, the head of the church, is a huge mistake. That kind of Erastian form of, of government is... Stupid and one of the dumbest things about the Church of England. The monastic dissolution in England was done solely for financial reasons. I don't know if that's true, but if it is, that's not necessarily one of the more noble moments of the Reformation. He makes a hilarious remark regarding the fruits of Calvinism. He says, This into all this had been thrust the hard wedge of Calvin's book, with its immense effects of doctrine, organization, and counter church, set up solidly at Geneva and spreading rapidly through France. An institution, the Presbyterian thing was born. He says France is the hope of the West. He says France didn't completely wipe out Protestants. And because they didn't completely wipe them out, that is what caused the French Revolution, which he says was a rationalist movement, which is true. It was a rationalist movement. For whatever reason, he places the survival of the faith in France. The survival of the faith in West is contingent on France. And I suppose that this is maybe his native country bias, but it is interesting to me how godless France has become. Talk about floods happening. They have a flood of Muslim immigrants and African immigrants coming in and fundamentally changing the culture of France right now. He says, France used the Reformation as a political tool. I'd be interested in hearing more about this, where they suppressed it at home. They suppressed the Reformation at home, but they supported it abroad. If anybody knows more about that, he, he didn't elaborate too much. I thought that was an interesting statement. All right, Balak frequently mentions the Reformation as an attack on unity. This is the refrain of modern Romanists today, and it's the refrain of really any fossilized and Institutional shill who's not interested in reformation or reforming. They place unity over truth. It just unity trumps. I've seen this among Protestants as well. But true unity will only come about if we prioritize truth. It's another way of saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's the song of false prophets. Now, there are real attacks on unity that exist, there are schismatic sects, but those sects, I would call them the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches. <laughs> And there does exist a kind of person that you would find among Protestants who doesn't know how to prioritize primary issues from secondary issues and tertiary issues. They want to die on every single hill. They're zealots, they're purists, they're cathars and donatists. These people do exist. They still exist today, not in huge numbers, but generally that accusation of the reformers just simply rings hollow. It's not true. The reformers were bringing up valid criticisms and prioritizing fundamental truths. And it was Rome who who fragmented the church. It wasn't the Protestants. Something else that Belloc loves to do, he frames the Reformation in terms of greed, following the money. He's constantly bringing up money. Cardinal Satteletto did the same thing with Calvin. Calvin points out that he would have made a whole lot more money if he just would have went along with the Roman church. (laughs) Belloc defines Calvinism as the love of money. Competition and usury are what it's all about. (laughs) Calvin's doctrine of man's duty is to become rich. Uh, I've read quite a bit of Calvin. I've I've read a lot of Calvin and I've never picked up on this. I'm not sure what he's talking about. And as I mentioned before, I think Belloc is importing Puritan caricatures onto Calvin. The Protestant work ethic translated into papist is the love of money. And again, I think that these are the, the whinings of somebody who is envious of, of coming in second place, of losing this particular battle. He again points to the plundering of monasteries, which I said before, he might have a point as it occurred in England. He mentions the squires in France. He says that they hated Roman Catholics because they, the squires, were poor and there was opportunity for loot. So there's opportunity for loot. And that's what, that was the wind that blew the Reformation about Europe he talks about the french revolution and the french revolution is philosophically wrong it was degenerate and atheistic and it was a rationalist movement but i think it's i think it's the three estates that existed and the first estate was the clergy and the aristocracy or something like that well they got what they had coming it may have been a bloody overreaction but it's like hey you are the reason that this happened even though it was it's the revolutionary spirit is fundamentally unjust and i wouldn't condone it Those people got what they deserved. And it's the same thing with the Roman Catholic Church. The clergy got what they deserved. They got knocked down to second place. They lost their power. Their monasteries got looted. May have been unjust in certain instances, but they got what they had coming. And I don't have a problem with framing it in that kind of way. He says the Reformation was not a fruit of the Renaissance. He's emphatic on this point. I don't know how he can say this. There's so much similarity. The Renaissance is about Ad Fontes returning to the sources. And this is exactly what the Reformers were doing. They were returning to the sources. They were returning to scripture. They were returning to the early fathers. And the Reformers themselves were humanists. Erasmus was a humanist, even though Erasmus was kind of in this weird twilight between the two. I mean, obviously he influenced many of the Reformers. So I don't really understand. Christian humanism is certainly a part of the Reformation, and that was born out of the Renaissance. So I'm not sure what he's getting at with that. I understand why he wants to separate the two, but I don't think it's true. He makes this really clever argument toward the end of the book. He says that religion without mediators leads to isolation of the soul, which then leads to subjectivism in philosophy. So that's interesting. But then he admits that And I've made this point on my video on authority in the Roman Catholic series that Roman Catholics have to make individual judgments. And it's interesting because he admits this, and I'll I'll quote it. He says, there is a sense, of course, in which we must all do that. For instance, a man accepting the authority of the reason or his senses or of the Catholic church is necessarily exercising an individual judgment. But then he makes a distinction. But subjectivism... Rather signifies that the mind suffering from it, for it is a disease, questions what is corporate in general in authority and prefers what is particular and isolated. Now, I'm not persuaded that Protestantism is subjectivism or leads to subjectivism or that it prefers what is isolated or that it's even devoid of mediators. I don't even think that's true. It does, however, prefer truth to institutional unity on primary matters. And if objective truth goes against a corporate judgment like a council or goes against something considered tradition, then we prefer the truth to the council or the supposed tradition. I don't think that this is subjectivism. I think that it operates on the same individual judgments that he concedes exist among Roman Catholics. I would be willing to say those individual judgments are the same kinds of things that lead to rejecting Rome He connects this isolation of the soul and subjectivism to the worship of self, since man must worship something. And since the state or the nation is an extension of himself, he says that the result of the Reformation is nationalism. Now, this is interesting because he wrote the book in 1928. So this was before the National Socialists in Germany came on the scene or at least were were prominent. I'm not totally sure the lead-up. I think the lead-up was more in the 30s. But it's likely he saw that particular form of nationalism in his day as a monster and nascent form. And so he couldn't help but to link Protestantism cleverly with it. They both, after all, came out of Germany. Now, I'm not convinced of this narrative either. As mentioned already, the Protestant principle affirms objective truth and reality. The Protestant principle also affirms the tradition of the church insofar as it comports with the teaching. Teachings of Jesus, his apostles, and the prophets. The Protestant principle does affirm our direct access to God, but also affirms mediators, if we want to call them, that like elders in the sacraments. So it's not devoid of mediation. These criticisms might hold up with like a Quaker communion, which has done away with elders and sacraments and, and all kinds of catholic tradition but i don't think it holds for magisterial protestantism furthermore there are healthy forms of christian nationalism and if anything the ugliest forms of national nationalism that i've witnessed in our own day have been from papist and eastern christians eastern christians are notoriously ethno-nationalists and snobbish and tight with their tribe and papists have been particularly nationalist as well you think of nick fuentes and the Groypers, like there's forms of nationalism that I would not want to be part of, and most of them are not led by Protestants, at least in our own day. I suppose one example of, of that could be Richard Spencer. He came from an Episcopalian background, but he doesn't claim to be a Christian anymore. He's an apostate. He calls himself a reluctant atheist. So He describes the Reformation as moral anarchy, which he does acknowledge existed before or that there was some kind of moral degeneracy before, although he doesn't call it moral anarchy. I guess he prefers ordered immorality rather than moral anarchy. Belloc admits to moral fa- failures in the church, but he also avoids doctrinal particulars. He doesn't really talk about doctrinal particulars. He avoids it throughout the whole book. He says Rome was tardy in restored it, restoring order. This is a, a criticism he gives of Rome, that they didn't really do anything from 1517 to 1559, which is when they, I, th- I think, convened for Trent. I think this is, that's where he's placing it. He admits repentance from Rome would have righted everything. He gives this really great quote on, on what repentance can do. He's, so he's talking about what Rome should have done when the Reformation broke out. This is obviously the perfect thing to do in such cases. If there were no conditions of matter, time, and space, if most men were intelligent, pure in motive, and heroic, instead of being, as most men are, stupid, corrupt, and cowardly, would be to perform what the Catholic Church herself calls penance. Obviously, the attack upon the Catholic Church would have had no success if all the officials thereof in the early 16th century had themselves come forward in a body denouncing their own guilt, the pluralities, the lay appropriations, the shame of their worldly lives, the gross scandals of impurity, the oppression of the poor, the exaggeration of mechanical aids to religion, the occasional use of fraud in it, the widespread use of extortion in clerical dues and rents, the chicanery of clerical courts. If the very many church officials who were guilty of evil living and had beaten their breasts, repented and turned anchorite, if the very many who were swollen with riches had abandoned them and given them to the poor, if such of the cultured renaissance prelates, as had come to ridicule the mysteries, had suddenly felt the wrath of God, then all would have been righted. So fruitful is repentance. Now, I think that this is a great statement about how much repentance does help in healing these kinds of things. And perhaps if that repentance would have happened, we would have been able to proceed forward with the doctrinal issues that were at play without fragmenting the church. It is all rome's fault it is not the protestants or the the reformers fault with the fragmenting of the church so i think his admission that they did not repent shows he's not considering the doctrinal things but i think it would have helped in at least engaging in the doctrinal issues and that perhaps there would have been more leeway in permitting certain latitude on various issues and and perhaps we would have been able to maintain the unity of the church but that's not what happened In the last chapter of the book, he does evidence humility in admitting that what can be known as far as factors contributing to great movements in history is limited, that there are forces beyond analysis, beyond human knowledge, and so I appreciated this a great deal that he had had said this. I was hoping for a hard-hitting criticism of the Reformation from Belloc, but I was generally disappointed. That's okay. Maybe that's not what he was going for. This book only made me love the Reformation even more. But I still wouldn't recommend it unless you're looking for a Roman Catholic take on the Reformation and you're unfamiliar with kind of these kind of popular criticisms. But for good books on the history of the Reformation, I would recommend J.H. Merle Dobigny's or Dobine's History of the Reformation in the 16th century. And then also Diermaid McCulloch's The Reformation of History. Those are big but those are really good if you're wanting something that's a little bit more abbreviated ryan reeves history series on youtube is good and bruce shelley's history of the church is short and to the point as well that's all we have for today and uh, have a good one bye